All right, my merry farmers are all around you. What do you observe? A few of you, what do you observe? Anybody, nice and loud. What? Gardening. What else do you observe? Nice and loud. Laborers, what else? All right, while, while my gardeners are still working, listen closely. What? After all is Apollos. And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. You hear that? Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. Each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For you are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Thank you, farmers. Um, you know, we did the parable of the four soils today. And it's easy to read that parable and kind, of want, and kind of think that, well, the 30, 60, and 100 fold should all happen pretty quick. But uh, only in our imagination or in fast motion does gardening happen pretty quick. Let's watch this video. Forty-five seconds, we got wheat. <laughs> That's not how it happens with people. Uh, let me read you uh, a poem I wrote uh, about a week ago. All too often you hear, what's in it for me? That question daily hums inside you and me. Even in serving... I hope someone noticed me. Even in giving, it can still be about me. One of the lies begun in Eden's garden. Look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Now we're curved in on ourselves, as Lewis did say. When push comes to shove, I'm doing it my way. This paradox of life, I'd be wise to heed. The flower springs forth after the death of the seed. What does it profit to gain the whole world only to then forfeit my soul? The trek to find myself will be so elusive. To lose myself, that's just not intuitive. To gain real life means I must first lose it. Lose my life for his sake? Eureka. I found it. The world all around is filled with so many needs. There's plenty of chances for you to sow invisible seeds. That wasn't in the text. <laughs> the world all around is filled with so many needs. There's plenty of chances for you to sow seeds. A smile, a kind word, or a thoughtful deed. God's word you may plant. Perhaps someone will heed. Let's pray together.
Father, what a tremendous purpose you have called us to. To be workers in your field. To be gardeners. There's no more greater purpose in all of life. And you have entrusted that as a tremendous privilege to each one of us who know you. May we not minimize it. And may we not think ourselves inadequate to the task in such a way that allows us to sit in isolation and do nothing. We are inadequate to the task. No matter how far along the road we are. But let, us, let that spur us on to faith and to step out in faith and lean into the people that you've placed around us. Give us eyes to see people and to see beneath the surface of what people show us and tell us. And help us to love them somewhat like Jesus does. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, going to do the same thing we did this morning. I'm just going to give you a little foundation stuff, uh, just some, some principles to think about. Then I want to uh, spend the rest of the time giving you some, some ideas. And the ideas this time are going to be uh, either ideas that I did when I was in college or my first year out of college trying to do student ministry, or some of them are, if I was back in school, knowing what I know now, what would I be trying to do? Uh, and again, what I'm hoping is that there are a few ideas that will resonate with you to where you say, well, I could do that. That doesn't sound all that hard. All right, so in your handout, some principles of influence. Part of what we're doing with people is decreasing the unnecessary barriers to the gospel. Uh, there are people all around us that have walls up about the gospel. Uh, some of them uh, are, are there because of their sin nature. And other, other times they're there because uh, of stupid things Christians do and stupid things Christians say. And, and naive things that we do and say. Uh, when Paul was set about to do ministry, at first he started trying to reach out to the Jews. And then he started reaching out to the Greeks. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, when I, when I was with the Jews, I tried to be a Jew. And when I was with the Gentiles, I tried to relate as a Gentile. Now, in that time, these were completely different worlds that he was living in. But what he's telling us is, um, when I was with the Jewish people, a lot of the culture and customs and stuff like that, I talked their lingo. And they could talk their lingo to me. When I was in the Gentile world, something very different, I tried to use their lingo and sort of adapt to how they do things and how they think about things and to try to, to, try to move the gospel into, into the world that way. In other words, he was trying to adapt his ministry to the people he was trying to reach Rather than just say, well, I'm just going to be about me and how I do ministry. Or another way of saying that, he's other-centered. Instead of trying to do ministry from a self-centered position. The second thing is expectations. I, I hesitate to even say this because you, know, you already know this. You just cannot expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian. You cannot expect them to respect you or to hold a high value of your beliefs and what you do. Like I told you this morning about me when I was on the other side, I was the king of sarcasm towards my, my Christian roommate. These kinds of things should not uh, deter you or defeat you. Of course they're going to relate like that. Of course. 
Don't let that derail you. Number three, the third little bullet point. People have a history and a story. And what I mean is this. When you are trying to share your faith with, with people, they have a story that you may not know about uh, that's deeply rooted in pain or sorrow or dysfunction. Um, and you may think that uh, you're appealing to their logic uh, and rationality, um, and sometimes that's just not the case. Or other times, as you're trying to share your faith, what, you're not, what you and I are not aware of is they have heroes in their mind. They're role models. And to adopt what you're saying to them about the faith is probably going to require them to disappoint their role model or to kill off a hero or two. When you run into a stubbornness, sometimes it's these kinds of things that we're not even aware of that are driving people. The fourth bullet point, make connections where possible. Any points of commonality you can do, do. And when you hear some of my examples at the end of the time, um, you'll hear that. I, I was a... Uh, I loved athletics. I, I was an intramural and gym rat in college. And afterwards, I did a lot of ministry stuff in the realm of sports. That was an easy commonality thing for me. You figure out your commonalities. Uh, the second thing is overcome wacky stereotypes. For example, example, the things that they think you believe. Some of these things are just amazing, I think. Um, there are so many non-Christians I talk to that when I ask them, what, what do you think Christians believe? One of the things I hear the most is, well, all I know is what you're against. <laughs> you imagine trying to share the gospel with somebody and that's all they know? I mean, you are starting at less than ground zero. You're in sub-basement somewhere. Or attitudes that you're running... Uh, that they typically think of Christians might have. Uh, for example, uh, oh, you're a hater. Or uh, all you guys are interested in is politics. Okay. If those things are in the person you're trying to reach as purview, that's how they think about you, then that's a stereotype that you want to try to dismantle most of the time, not directly or rationally, but through your attitude. The third bullet point is uh, what happens relationally. It is so easy for us as Christians who know we have the truth to come across in our attitude as superior or a know-it-all or the guy with all the answers. Now, here's what's tricky. It's not to say that we have all the answers because there's a certain mystery of life and there are some things we'll never know. But in another sense, we have a lot of answers. So part of what's tricky here is you're, you're sharing truth, but with we'll an attitude of we have all the answers. There's some humility that's needed to help soften up the soil, so to speak. Uh, and then I think about group branding. Uh, here the idea is Jesus said, uh, when, when you guys love each other, uh, there's something that the world sees they won't see any other way. So when, when I was a, a new Christian, I tried to get some of my Christian friends 
involved in my uh, non-Christian world. All right, uh, we are going to uh, spend some time uh, with the Master, uh, John chapter 4. Uh, you can follow along in your outline if you want. Uh, or you can um, turn in your Bibles to the book of John. All right. Very well-known story. Uh, before in your handout, it said Jesus had to go to Samaria. Uh, interesting, because he really didn't have to. It was the shortest way as the crow flies. But no Jew dared walk through Samaria. Instead of walking due north through Samaria to Galilee, they walked east uh, to the Jordan River, crossed the Jordan River, went up the other side, around Samaria, crossed the Jordan River on, to the west side and went into Galilee. But John writes, the Holy Spirit prompted him to say, Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why did he have to go? We know of at least one woman he wanted to meet and some folks in that town. We pick up the story in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came out to draw water, which, by the way, in, in previous verses, she came out in the heat of the day, uh, be, probably because she was ostracized by the other, woman, other women who went out in the cool of the morning. Uh, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to McDonald's. <laughs> the Samaritan woman, woman said to him, and here she's just stunned because of the culture. You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan, meaning... You know, and I know, that Jews don't talk to Samaritans. I mean, I, we're in the low class, and you've you just done this faux pas. Nobody does. And a woman. And in that Jewish culture, Jewish men rarely talk to women, particularly in public. And so she's perplexed. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John records, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Here the idea is she is just completely befuddled by him. Now, what is he doing? He is tearing down some stereotypes. He's doing it intentionally by taking the initiative in the conversation. Showing interest in her and having enough humility to ask her for a favor. All of these things capture her imagination and her attention. He initiates the conversation in just a simple way. Would you give me a drink of water? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sounds like a strange answer, doesn't it? Why didn't he just pull out the four spiritual laws right then and just, wow, okay, hey, have you ever read this? Even as Christians, you read verse 10 and you think, what was he saying to her? Didn't it sound a little confusing? Kind of muddled? You would think Jesus would be kind of razor sharp on his theology, wouldn't you think? 
What's he doing here? He's giving her a teaser. He's giving her, he's, he's raising her curiosity. He's allowing her to ponder on something. Uh, instead of bashing her over the head, he's wading into the shallows. He's engaging in a conversation that almost feels like equals. Like maybe he's her new friend. Just a thought. Uh, when I think about this in verse 10, my mind goes in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight directions. I don't know how many of these are true or not, and, and maybe, you know, maybe some of these will resonate with you. He suggests that God wants to give her a gift. It's, it's sort of like the kid next door in the basket. Hey, I got you a Christmas present. Some anticipation there. Wow, what that could be. Uh, he works to create spiritual curiosity. He moves the conversation toward a spiritual direction, but only with a little nudge. He doesn't use the dump truck method with her. The big load of truth. He assumes that she may not know God, but hints that if she did, something good would happen. Again, curiosity, anticipation. Uh, he's creating interest. He's engaging the woman. He relates to her as personal equals and spiritual equals in his attitude. Now, clearly they are not spiritual equals. But in his attitude, she's engaged in the conversation. He takes something very ordinary, water, and uses it as a metaphor for what he can give. It's still vague. She doesn't know what he's talking about yet. He uses a vague term like living water to prompt a response from her. I've done Bible studies with people and that are lost people. When they get to this part, I say, what do you think he meant by living water? They almost always say Evian. <laughs> Bottled water. Well, let's keep looking at the text. Um, here's her response, verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank for himself? Yeah. How's she coming along? She's confused. She doesn't know what water he's talking about. She's still thinking physical water. She's thinking about uh, the well. She thinks about Jacob. Um, uh, how, does this, what, how, does, how does his response to her? Uh, at the first, her initial idea of Jesus is that he's just another man. But now she compares Jesus to the great Jewish patriarch, Jacob. How did that happen? Uh, it would be sort of like your friends that say, well, I, I believe Jesus was a good man. You're kind of at that level. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Was that helpful to her? Okay, that clears it up. Now I know what you're saying. 
As you read her response, she's more confused than ever. And probably you are too. Because he uses this word thirst and water interchangeably, I think, in three different ways. Uh, and, I, and I think he does this purposefully, again, just to create interest and pique her curiosity. So when I think about thirst, uh, I think there are three kinds of thirst. But we normally just think, uh, oh, my soul is just so thirsty, I just feel so dry. Well, that's how it seems. But I think there are two other thirsts that masquerade as that. Uh, one thirst is, is we all, every human being thirsts for that elusive something. That's just universal. We all have that kind of thirst. That's part of what he's inferring as he's talking to her. You have that same thirst. There's the obvious physical thirst for water. I'm not counting that as one of the, the reasons for thirst. There's the normal human thirst for something. The second kind of thirst that I think he is relating to is the kind of thirst you have if you drink salt water. You drink salt water and you're going to be thirstier and thirstier than you were before. And what he's referring to here is if you try to find the wrong water in life to slake the first kind of thirst in your life, you're going to have an even bigger second thirst that you're going to find really hard to slake. So do you follow the first two here? We all have this thirst for the human yearning for something more in life. That's normal. Thirst number two is, is self-created thirst because my, my, my pursuit of life or the water I think will satisfy my soul just can't do it. And not only can it not do it for very long, it makes the thirst worse. Thirst number three, and you're familiar with this, is God is trying to create a deeper thirst for him. Now, oftentimes as Christians, I, I hear somebody say, and I used to think this too, what's wrong with me? I just feel so spiritually dry. Okay, well, sometimes it's because I'm doing something stupid or, or my approach in some aspect of life is off kilter. I'm letting some desires run me that I may not even know I'm doing. And instead of, uh, instead of that helping me, it's hurting me and hurting the people around me. What do we have in that? What is that next to you? It's moving. A bug. Would, you, would somebody, one of you fellas, yes, take that little fella outside before the girls freak out. Thank you. Somebody achieved hero status. Don't milk it too much. <laughs> That's awesome. I just feel so dry. I just feel so spiritually empty. Sometimes that's good. God is at work. He's creating space in your heart to thirst after him. It's not always, what's wrong with me? I just, yeah. Of course you're going to be thirsty. You're going to have that human thirst, and first, number one, and as a Christian, you should have thirst number three. The first one's normal. The third one works in your favor. 
to force you to God, even if you wouldn't come of your own volition, if for no other reason to feel better, even that will work. So I think what he's doing here with the thirst and the water and the living water is he's suggesting that her approach to life is faulty without telling her that. Hopefully it will resonate if you were in the breakfast talk the other day, it will resonate in her box four and box seven. All right. Um, two kinds of water. Um, one water she can get out of the well. A metaphor for what people try to do to make this world work and feel better about themselves. That's one approach to water. The other is a water that only, only he can give. Only, only, only. Have choices. Um, what is it that that water is? What is that living water? Now, obviously, she doesn't know what that is. She's she's working on this, but it's sometimes it can be a mystery for you and me too. There are good things that happen in my life that are blessings, and I'm happy about those. But they do nothing for my soul. Nothing. I like blessings. I don't like suffering. But what I need more than anything else is to, is to keep pursuing God as my first love, whether it feel like it, I feel like it or not, whether he seems very present to me or whether he seems a thousand miles away, whether it seems like he's hearing my prayers or whether he's just kind of going, ah, 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 ah. Because sometimes the, the living water is not that I feel better, but the living water is I'm more hungry for him. I'm more thirsty for him. Not satisfied, not satiated, not, not thirst slaked, just hungrier. And just thirstier. So... Think about this in your life. How many times have you said, God, I'm just so hungry. What's wrong for you? What's wrong with me? I think the answers are going, oh, you're so close. You're so close. You're in the right track. You don't even know it. This is kind of what he's suggesting to her. Welling up to eternal life, meaning full life. Uh, this spiritual, or this hunger, um, this thirst that he's bringing up, you and I can bring up in conversations with lost people. He brings up thirst and slaking thirst in water. I like to talk about emptiness with people. And there are times where I tell people, well, I, I, there are times in every day I feel empty. And that is such a relief to lost people because they won't admit it to you, but they feel the same thing. I'm married to the most wonderful creature I know. I have the best marriage I know, and I'm trying not to be biased when I say that. But there's not a day that goes by that I don't feel lonely in our marriage. And Mindy would tell you the same thing. Why? Because our soul is much bigger than what even... Us, it with a full cup can pour into each other. Of course I'm going to feel lonely. 
Loneliness is a great thing to talk about. Why, Why is loneliness a good? There's a bad loneliness, self-inflicted loneliness. There's a good loneliness, a redemptive loneliness. It drives me to God. Which is what I need more than anything else. Suddenly he changes the subject. Did he just change the subject because she was confused and just seemed, didn't seem to be going anywhere? Well, he, they're, they're sort of talking in blue sky, big, you know, big kind of things. And now he just kind of brings it down, you know, onto the, onto the table here, the, the real life. Go call your husband and come back. Uh, why in the world did he change the subject like that? She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, and so, you know, sometimes when you read this, you think, wow, I don't know if I could get away with saying it the way he did. I think somebody might be offended. Which tells me that in his attitude, his nonverbals, as he's talking to her, he had convinced her that he cared about her. You are right when you say you have no husband. Probably paused. And then, <laughs> I would not have had the courage to say this. The fact is, you've had five husbands. Oh, man. And the man you now have is not your husband. You're shacking up. What you have said is quite true. Now, why does he change the subject like this? He's inferred that her, her approach to life is faulty. It's not working. Instead of slaking thirst, it's making her thirstier. And what he's trying for her to come to the conclusion rather than him telling her is he's trying to connect these dots so that she draws this conclusion. Um, why would a woman have had five husbands and shacked up with another fellow? What in, the, in her real heart does she believe will bring her life together? Companionship, the love of a man. How's that been working for her? She has yet to discover that even the best men can give about this much coffee, but her soul is about this big. Now what Jesus is trying to, to, to show her is there's, a, there's a, a, a contrast here. There's a disconnect. She's been trying to use um, one kind of water and all it's doing is, work, is, is going against her. Uh, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim a place where you must worship in Jerusalem. And he finally, she, she turns the conversation more to religious matters. He meets her where she is. He turns the conversation from religious matters to more personal matters and finally reveals who, him, who, she, who he is. We just have excerpts, I think, of this conversation. But the excerpts we have, I think, is a great metaphor for the kind of sowing seeds or, in tonight's thing, watering, fertilizing, weeding, hoeing, cultivating some of the relationships that we've had where we have sown seeds. All right, turn to the back of your page, and let me just try to give you some specific examples here. Now, I know I told some of you at meals about becoming a Christian 
and I'd just been elected social chairman of our fraternity. Did I share that story this morning? Okay, let me share this story. Uh, I got saved on a Friday night at a weekend retreat. By the time I got home on Sunday, I had five fraternity brothers at my house in a panic. They walk in and they say, we heard you got religion. You got that Jesus stuff. I just started laughing. Now, now the reason they were in a panic was because the week before, I'd been elected social chairman of our social fraternity, which is a euphemism for 40 drunk guys. <laughs> so these guys are going, what are we going to have, Bible studies at our parties? You know. <laughs> and, I, and so, I mean, I, you know, I've been a Christian all of about 48 hours. And I have my first moral and ethical uh, conundrum in front of me. And, um, and so I said to the guys, hey, don't worry. We'll have parties just like we always have. That seemed like the, about the best thing to do at the time. And then, oh, thank the Lord, which I thought was kind of a funny response. You know? <laughs> I tried not to laugh at him, but I don't think I was successful. Uh, so the next Saturday, we had a party at one of the guys who had a big apartment house, uh, a big apartment, and uh, it was packed, 40 guys. Most of them had dates. I didn't have a date that night. And I'd bought a bunch of liquor and had setups and ice and glasses and stuff to, to me. And about half the guys that got there were already hammered. And the other guys, it didn't take long for them to, to pursue that same goal. Now, I had come to a place where I thought I might be becoming an alcoholic. I had one episode that scared me, kind of where you cross that line and you think, oh my gosh, am I becoming that guy? Um, so this is an easy decision. Uh, I bought a big bottle of 7-Up and I just drank 7-Up all night. Now, <laughs> the music is loud enough that it's hard to carry on a conversation. The couch is full of people, the chairs are full of people, the kitchen chairs are full of people, and everybody else is sitting around the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, on the floor, leaning up against the wall. Nobody is talking to their dates or each other. They're just getting hammered. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, man, eight or nine days ago, this would have been me. And it felt like I was standing in the middle of a cemetery. It was as dead as could be. There was no life emanating anywhere around me. I was just dumbfounded. And so, as I'm drinking my 7-Up, I just start working the room. Just going from couple to couple, talking to friends, trying to be a blessing, trying to get some of the girls uh, uh, to know them if I didn't know them. And, and by the time the evening was over, everybody left, I was clearly the happiest guy in the room. And I was just like, God, how did this happen in nine days? I was just dumbfounded. Now, unfortunately, about a week later, I was at one of my friend's house in the fraternity. There were about eight of us. And some, one of the guys pulled out a joint across the room and started around the corner, around the circle. And I'm going, oh, no, what am I going to do? And I'm thinking... I, well, I, I, can't, I can't pop on, on, on the joint because then they're, they're going to think that my Christianity thing was just a passing thing. 
And then I thought, but if, but if I don't do it, they're going to think I'm a Jesus freak and, religious, and, and I'm going to be looking down on them. Think I'm holier than thou. And every time it moved closer to me, it was almost like I saw the steamroller moving closer to me. <laughs> and my feet were locked. I couldn't move. I couldn't escape. I couldn't do anything. And finally it came to me and he handed it to me and I, I don't know what to do. And so I, I inhaled and I passed it on to the next guy. And about 15 minutes later, we were done. And I'm walking home in the darkness and suddenly thinking, Seth, you are a moron. I get home, and I get on the phone. This is before cell phones. You, you, you know, we didn't even call them landlines back. What did we used to call them? Telephone. Phone. Telephones. There we go. <laughs> so I started calling all the guys on that list with basically this script. Hey, we were just at so-and-so's house, passed around a joint. Um, you know, I, as you know, I, I smoked with you guys, and, and on the way home, I really regretted it. I don't, it doesn't matter to me if everybody in our fraternity smokes dope. I don't care about that. But I don't want you to think that when I discovered Jesus a couple weeks ago, that it's something fading or something not real. That's why I'm calling you. It's real. I just made a mistake today. About half the guys I talked to said, well, I was kind of wondering what you were going to do. I said, well, I failed. I failed. I'm hoping to do better. Uh, do you hear an attitude as you talk to lost people? You do not have to have it together. Please! You will never so see it if you're thinking you have to have it together before you do that. When you mess up, you just tell them. I screwed up. Wish I hadn't done that. Um, what would I do if I was going back? Uh, if a friend had a birthday in the dorm or the apartment complex, I remember I'm a guy, so you ladies would probably do something different. I'm ordering a pizza and have it delivered to that guy's apartment. I'm going to go down there and say, I've got a surprise coming for you probably in about 10 minutes. Happy birthday. <laughs> what do pizzas run now? 10 bucks? What could, how better could you, what better $10 could you spend than that? You're sowing seed. Um, if you're going to go watch some football games with some guys, bring some food with you. Easy. Now, you ladies already know that, but we guys, we don't. <laughs> I would ask help with my term papers. So why would you do that? Because there's something endearing about humility and saying, I need some help. Would you help me? You, have some, you are much better at this than me. Would you help me with this? You're sowing some seeds of humility, partly in the, in the hopes that they might do that with you. They might be humble enough to ask you something, maybe about spiritual things. Wow. Uh, studying with a friend, especially if your friend is an introvert. Stays in their room all the time. All right, Charlie, hey, we're going to the library. You and me, let's go. Just get them out of the room, take them with you. To an introvert, that's pretty big stuff. Uh, invite them to challenge, invite them to a Bible study. When we were in Texas, you say, well, we already do that. Well, that's good. Well, when we were in Texas, 
Years ago, one of the guys on staff did a study of all the people who became Christians and stuck around. An interesting statistic. The average number of invites it took before a non-Christian came to any Christian event, church or otherwise, was six. I've already asked him a couple of times. He just said no. You're just barely getting started. <laughs> Organize a touch football game. That's easy to do. I used to get some of my new Christian friends to go with me. I want you to meet some of my, my uh, fraternity brothers that are as lost as a goose. <laughs> One of the fun things I did my senior year was, uh, I, like I told you, I love football. And so I went to one of my Christian uh, uh, girls that's, a, that's a, uh, a, a friend that's a Christian in the, in the Allen dorm at Baylor. And I said, um, uh, I want to coach an intramural flag football team of girls. And I want you to get a couple Christian friends of yours to join the team. And I want you to find some of the lost girls in here to be a part of the team. Oh, and by the way, would you find a really good point guard in high school and three track stars? It would help our team. So if you, now, you know, girls don't grow up playing peewee football or little league football. So what I had observed when they're out there trying to play for the first time flag football, you know, it's, it's just not pretty. You know, the, the pass can kind of go from me to day. And, and, you know, this is not, not a big passing game going on there. So it seemed easy to me. You get a high school girl that played point guard, and you have her play quarterback, and you run the wishbone. Or if, you don't, if you're too old to know what the wishbone is, the veer. Or if you're still too old, the triple option. Or, or just the option. So, <laughs> so we lined up. I had this, this amazing point guard gal that was just, so, she was like just a butt. She was so quick. And then I had a track star on the end, and a track star on the end, and a track star behind her. And she would fake, or she would look, she'd read the defense, the first person in. And if the girl was covering, coming on the running back, she'd pull the ball out, scamper around her like crazy. And then the next defender would come in, and she'd make the same decision. If the girl plays on her, she pitches the ball out to the speedster, zoop. And if uh, sometimes she would fake the pitch, the girl would take the fake, zoop point guard up the middle, and then sometimes, and this, this, this was just cruel and unusual punishment. When you run that offense, and you have the quarterback out there, and, and the first, the lineman has been faked out, the linebacker went to the wrong place, all you have left is a safety. And you've got a girl who's a track star that you can pitch the ball to, and you've already had a split end that's running down the field like a deer. You tell me what the safety's going to do. It's like taking candy out of, what, what's the little girl's name, the little three-year-old? Corey. It's like taking candy out of Corey's hands. Perhaps you pick up a little bit too much glee in coach here. Uh, let me, just, let me uh, just tell you one other story, and, and we'll, we'll get to where we wrap up here. My first year out of college, um, I was training a guy how to do student ministry. And so uh, we were trying to think about how we're going to meet as many freshman guys as possible. 
Anna at, the, at TCU. There was a freshman dorm, three stories high. And so I just self-appointed myself the, um, the, the uh, coach of the Clark football intramural flag football team. And on the day when all the kids are coming in and their parents are moving all their stuff in, I gave my, my friend John Hawkins a whistle, and I had a whistle, and I gave him a clipboard and a clipboard. I had a football tucked under, and we just worked the whole first floor meeting guys. Hey, you want to play any real football? We're not going to have a team. And so I get down a name, a room number, and their telephone, their landline. And uh, so we're going to practice Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, meet outside at 4 o'clock. So uh, we had about 30 guys that were interested. First practice. All these guys are stretching, you know, they're running, they're warming up. And poor John, I did not know this at the time, but uh, I had a couple footballs in my hands and a clipboard, and I just kind of tossed from about here to you, just, just kind of tossed him the ball. John, I found out, was the most uncoordinated, unathletic guy I've ever known. You would have thought I was throwing a hand grenade at him. <laughs> I looked at this and I panicked. I thought, you're going to blow our cover. <laughs> so I quickly ran over and I put both clipboards in his hands. Don't let go of these. <laughs> now, now, we had practices Tuesdays and Thursdays. We got to know about 30 guys regularly at practice. We were in the dorm a lot, just going by, visiting their rooms. They knew us, we knew them. Then we had the season where we're playing games and we're out there having fun. Some games we won, some games we lost. But, uh, man, it was a great year. Lots of different things. Um, it takes a long time for seeds to, to grow into uh, something that you can see. Uh, it takes some time to, for, for flowers to show up. Let's go to the next one. And the next one. With water, some sun and soil and fertilizer, some pruning, eventually you get a chance to see some beauty, some life, some color. But seeds are thrown in fields. Anybody recognize that field? For some of you, that's your field. But it also takes some sowers. Some of you are in this room because of seeds. Those two sown. There's some other sowers. You remember how long ago this picture is? Ten years. No comments allowed about ages. Now, one of the things that I always struggle with, pretty commonly, is I just don't see that much fruit in my life. 
because I'm looking at right around me. But some of you are in this room because of seeds some of these folks sowed 10 years ago. And some of them probably don't know you're here because of seed they sowed 10 years ago. But you are. And someday, they're going to know that. But it may not be until they march into heaven. Let me finish with a poem I wrote last fall. This is called Maturity. Persevering, as in weeding, fertilizing, water. Persevering even through doubts. Finding his strength in my weakness. Doing good in spite of my badness. Unflagging hope despite what sometimes seems so futile. Planting seeds. Watering buds. Flowers I may never see until I'm walking in gardens far away. Today, a handful of seeds, a small watering can, barren ground, but pleasant scents to come. Hints of fragrance, flowers and vases, much later. Let's pray together. And uh, worship team, are you? Oh, yeah, come on up. Let's pray. Father, sometimes this sowing and gardening is hard work. Sometimes it is discouraging. Uh, it's not like that wheat field we saw that that became wheat in 43 seconds. But others have persevered in our stead, like my roommate Johnny, and some of the people that you saw on the screen. Some of you have friends here who pers persevered with you. Lord, this morning we talked about sowing seeds. Help us to do that. But then also with our relationships with lost people, help us to become gardeners, weeders, fertilizers, tillers of soil, pruners. Knowing that one day we will see flowers.